I'm Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist. And this is a space for young people, families, and professionals who want to understand neurodiversity and mental illness better. I'm here to help you make sense of the most complex of issues in the simplest of ways. Let me walk you through topics that are important to you, from autism to trauma and from depression to self-harm. In this podcast, I'll bring you expertise, explain the science and equip you with practical tips and knowledge. Join me, Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, for 30 minutes every Wednesday on all listening platforms. Hi. Today, we're talking about children who are under five years old, and particularly about autism. Thank you for everyone who reached out on social media and gave me this idea to talk about children who are under five. Your comments and your questions have been really helpful, and I think they match a lot of my personal and professional experience of what kind of concerns parents will have when they're raising a child under five. And particularly in this day and age where we know a lot about neurodivergence and we tend to worry about autism. So I'm going to dedicate a couple of episodes to children under five to try and pick through some of these common problems that people uh, face. Now, a common one is, does my child have autism? And I hear things like, my child throws tantrums quite easily. My child is very emotionally up and down, emotionally dysregulated. And my child tries to control things. And sometimes I hear about really difficult comments, very difficult things that parents really don't want to hear from their five-year-old. Things like, they, um, I'm going to hurt you in a certain way, or I'm going to hurt my siblings, or I'm going to hurt myself. And these things tend to be very alarming for parents, rightfully so. So, so I'm going to address some of these things, and I'm going to tell you what autism looks like in children under five. Another common one is if a child is not talking well or is not developed well in their language by the age of five, um, as well as socially in terms of how they make friends, how they get on at nursery or how they get on at school. So let's start by looking at what a normal uh, between, you know, um, parentheses, what is, what is a, a normal five-year-old look like? And my answer from seeing countless five-year-olds in my life is I have no idea. Each five-year-old is very unique and very different to the other. And they, they are a product of a lot of things. They're a product of the, um, their genetic, you know, um, makeup and what they are like genetically. They are also a product of their life experiences up to that point. They're a product of what environment they are in. Sometimes they're a product of what is happening right now at home. And that's a very important one to keep in mind when we talk about behaviors is that children often mirror exactly what life is like at home. So it's easy for me right now to talk to a five-year-old and kind of guess what kind of environment is home. Is it high strung? Is it calm? Is the family going through something difficult at the moment? Is something going on with one of the parents? Is somebody ill? 
it's kind of, you can tell from a child's demeanor, from a child's uh, thought process about things, from how they play, from how they approach others, whether they are confident, scared, um, worried, how they converse with the world and how they converse with other people is so affected, not only by the narrative that parents give to the children, but also by what is going on in the family's life at the moment. The the other thing that is really important to understand about five-year-olds is that they are on just the verge of being able to tell you what's going on. So sometimes people tell me, oh, my child is so grown up. They're very mature because their child is able to talk, to speak well. And and sometimes people confuse that. And, and I often say, you know, it's like um, it's like talking to a parrot sometimes. They're able to talk, to use language verbally, but that doesn't always mean they're able to reason. That does not always mean that they're able to um, understand what you're talking about, understand abstract uh, ideas, understand the the pros and cons of a decision. So it it, it is very difficult um, when you have a conversation with a five-year-old and try to say, oh, make the right decision. Well, they have no idea what the right decision is because they haven't got the tools. Their brain hasn't developed that way yet. And it's also very difficult to ask a child to control their emotions when they're five. They might be able to tell you things like, you know, I feel sad or happy, but not often are they able to understand what that really means. If you want to know what a child is feeling, look at their behavior. That's the easiest way to, to, to understand five-year-olds and decipher that age group of five and under is just looking at their behavior and interpreting it. So when you ask me about what a typical five-year-old is, I'd say, okay, most of the research tells us that a typical five-year-old will have a certain um, range of language. They'll be able to understand um, what you are saying to a degree. They'll be able to understand very basic black and white concepts. So bad and good naughty and nice, mean and kind, but they won't be able to understand things in between. They're going to be able to understand basic emotions, but not to the degree that you'd expect someone older. So for example, when you're talking to a five-year-old, it's it's kind of expected for them to, if you have actually put in the time to, to teach them emotional labeling, they'll be able to eventually understand what it means to be happy or sad maybe scared, maybe angry, but anything further to that is very difficult to them. So it's very, very difficult to understand, for example, what jealousy means or what um, um, disappointment means. It, it, it's, it's a hard concept to understand for a five-year-old. And then comes how they express themselves. A five-year-old, by the time you're five, really, you'd expect a degree of fluency in how they express themselves. So, for example, you'd expect someone who's five to be able to tell you a little story, a little small, tiny couple of sentences of a story of, I went to school today and this happened and I got upset or something and that's it, the end. So I, I wouldn't expect a Hemingway piece, but I'd expect a little bit of a narrative. They'd be able to join in a few sentences together with a degree of 
vocabulary that's, you know, that's kind of colorful. Uh, they'd be picking up words like actually or cute or stuff that they hear often. I'd also expect a degree of grammar. So um, I'd, I'd be expecting pronouns to be right. I'd be expecting um, certain words to be used like uh, past tense and present tense to a degree correctly. That's kind of on the best day for a five-year-old. So I won't expect that every day, you know, because people do go through ups and, uh, and downs. I'd be expecting some social um, ability. So I'd be expecting a five-year-old to see a couple of children playing in the playground and be able to go and play next to them and try to join in. I wouldn't be expecting them to go like an ambassador and go like, oh, hello, my name is Blah. I'd be expecting them to play alongside and understand what the game is and join in. And in terms of emotional regulation, now that's a tricky one because people have very high expectations of children sometimes um, in that area. Five-year-olds are just learning what emotions are. Remember when I said if you put in the emotional labeling working, if you actually over and over and over, explain and, and, and model and act out to the child that, okay, this feeling is anger and I'm feeling anger in my chest or this feeling is sad and I'm feeling sad in my stomach. And you try and explain the feelings and help them understand what they are over and over and over, then they will be able to start to understand what emotions are and identify them within themselves. So in order to regulate, what do you need? What do you need in order to regulate, in order not to um, kind of spiral into a meltdown as a person? You need to, number one, be able to identify what your emotion is. So for example, I feel scared. I'm feeling scared and I feel it in my heart because it's pounding. I'm feeling it in my throat because there's the lump in it. And Number two, you need to identify what is causing that feeling. I'm feeling scared because uh, there's a spider. And number three, to identify what kind of behavior you need to do to extract yourself from the situation or what do you need to do next in order not to get stuck in it. So, okay, I feel scared of the spider. I need to run away. So once I've run away, I need to have a sense of groundedness to be able to scan my reality and look around and say, okay, there's no spider anymore. I'm safe. I'm fine. And number five, to be able to bring myself down from that heightened emotional state. And I can use distraction. I can tell someone about it. I can have a drink. I can sit down. So, so these, you can't emotional, emotionally regulate without all of these aspects, you can't regulate your feelings without identifying them, identifying uh, the cause, finding a way out, and then removing yourself and then grounding yourself so you don't remain in that heightened emotional state for the rest of the day. Now, you see, this is a very complex thing. And what you see in grown-ups as shouting or um, having a panic attack is exactly what you see in a child when they're having a tantrum. It's emotions running wild, emotions running completely out of control. So when you're five, I'm expecting actually 
more tantrums because think about it. I mean, you're five. People have more expectations of you now. You have a you have a, a reception to go to, or um, you're expected to sit down um, at your nursery or at your school more. You're expected to sit down and try and read. You're expected to get dressed. You're expected to eat properly at the table. You're expected to do a lot of things. And it's almost always outside of your control. It's almost always not up to you. And no matter how permissive as a parent, no matter how you try to kind of be inclusive, if your child is trying to leave in the middle of a rainstorm in, you know, in, in, in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt without a jacket, you're going to veto that decision. You're going to go like, no, you're putting on these safer uh, pieces of clothing. And that's for a five-year-old is such an infringement. And you got to do it because you're a parent. You're not going to allow them to break a boundary. You're not going to allow them to hit their sibling. You're not going to allow them to hit you. You're not going to allow them to um, eat sweets for dinner. You're going you're gonna to enforce a boundary. And understanding that there are things outside of my control is a very important stage of development. And children at that age battle with that realization. They battle with the expectations that are of them socially, uh, educationally, and in their home environment. Up to that point, you see, children, you know, you won't see a three-year-old in the position where you're asking them, oh, don't throw your food, for example, or um, why are you throwing a tantrum? Why are you not getting out of the car? When they're three, you kind of, you know, get along with it. And they don't have an understanding when they're three of whether or not they are separate to you. Up to that point, they're still trying to figure out whether they're separate to you or not, if they're separate people to you. And to, to understand this bit is, is important because people tend to get stuck with trying to individuate children trying to make sure that they sleep in their own bed, uh, try and, and, and regulate and not cry, and try and, and stay in bed all night and never um, um, try and cling to me. And, it's, it, and I know independence is a very important skill, but in, in terms to become, in order to become independent, you need to have an internal sense of security. You cannot become independent without a sense of security. So if you're being let down repeatedly, because your grown-up is trying to enforce that individuation way too early, you, you are bound to distrust the world. You are bound to um, not expect caring and compassion when you need them. And, in, and instead of becoming individuated or in, instead of becoming independent, you become paranoid and you treat the world with that level of mistrust. Now, now, why is it important for me to tell you this when I'm talking about autism? It's important because children develop at the stage that they need to. So if your child is clinging to you, by the time they're five, they need to cling to you. You need to find the root cause. Why are they clinging to you? Why do they need to cling to you? If your child is struggling, to express themselves and they throw tantrums and they can't find another way to verbalize their emotions. What is the root cause? What is going on that they're unable to verbalize? Do they have the words for it? Do they understand 
what the feeling means. So, for example, sometimes I hear people say, oh, use your words, use your words. It's very hard, you know. Sometimes it's helpful to actually tell them what kind of words. So, for example, oh, don't hit your sister. Why don't you try and use please stop, for example? Or, oh, uh, you're, you're crying, you're, you're shouting. I see you're, you're very angry. Would it be easier if you said you were very angry? I see you're trying to hit something. You're trying to throw stuff. That's fine. Would you take this ball and throw it instead of my ceramic figurine or something, you know? So it's important to walk them through these tantrums. When these tantrums happen, often they're a sign of, I don't have another way to express my feelings. And the way to get rid of them is, number one, not to expect to get rid of them because tantrums are developmental and are needed. Number two is to try and walk the child through them rather than associate tantrums with um, the parent becoming upset or the parent detaching. And I, I realize this as a parent, I can tell you that tantrums are very, very distressing and triggering, especially when you're the parent. It's easy for me to come as an outsider and say that, but... It's important to model how you regulate. Sometimes it's important to tell the child, you know, this shouting is making me very stressed. And what I need right now is to take some space and give you some space. Or what I need right now is to wash my face with some cold water because I feel a bit stressed from all the shouting. When you're ready to stop shouting, we can try again. So what you're doing here is modeling. You're saying, I'm going to wake and I'm going to walk away from this, not because I hate you now that you've shown emotion. I'm going to walk away from this because I'm distressed as well. And for future reference, this is one thing that you can do when you're feeling stressed. Now, what does an autistic child look like if they're five? Number one, autism is three things, really. Autism is a difficulty in understanding social relationships. Children who are autistic develop in other areas of their lives well, but this part of their brain takes its time. This part of understanding what a friendship is or how I form one or how I interact with other people using language or using uh, nonverbal language or using other forms of communication, understanding relationships generally and how they work is very difficult for children who are autistic. And the second thing is they struggle to develop ways of communicating with others. They struggle with their language development, so they're often delayed, or the language doesn't develop properly. So they, it, it develops mixed up. So sometimes children will um, have something called echolalia where they uh, repeat words or they'll repeat phrases or they'll use stock language, stock phrases. So for example, um, I know that when I see someone, I'll say, hiya, pal, because I've seen that in a show, in a kid's show. So every time I'm in a situation, I'm going to give it a shot. Hiya, pal. Hiya, pal. And and it's not it's not really appropriate for the situation. It sounds right because you're greeting someone, but why are you using that term, that phrase particularly in that situation? It's not always appropriate. So that's called a stock phrase. It's like using a stock image of the internet and and putting it you know over your presentation when it's not always appropriate. 
not always bespoke for the situation. It's not always customized, if that makes sense. Now, other things that you see in how children with autism develop their language is an interesting one. Children with autism tend to play around with accents. And and that's very interesting because you'll see a child, I practice in the UK, and you'll see a child who's never left the UK speaking a perfect American accent. And it's there are many theories about why that happens, but that's an interesting one, is that ability to bend language and bend accent and bend vocabulary in a way that suits your ability. And it's a very special skill that children with autism have. The third thing is a need for structure. And this is very important because you see it in that age and it's a developmental stage anyway. When you're five, you need structure. If an expectation breaks, you get upset. Children with autism tend to need structure a little bit extra. They need to have certainty. So if if we're not, if I know that every day I have a cup of milk before I go to nursery or I go to school, and on that day I didn't, I had juice instead, ensues a tantrum. Or um at school, sometimes there are transitions or from class to class or moving from room to room. Children who are autistic at that age will really struggle with that and will tend to be very rigid. Now, I left the social relationship bit to the end because I want to talk to you about children with autism and their social development. Now, children who are five, like I said, can see a group of friends playing and join in. Children who are autistic might want to join in, but be unable to. So for example, it's very hard to know what to do with the children, with the group of children playing. So sometimes we'll see an autistic child commonly sitting outside around the fringe of the group. So they'll, they'll think they're playing with the group, but actually they're playing next to the group. They're running around with the group versus they're running next to the group. So they'll be on the fringes of a group of children playing, but not really engaged in the game. They'll find it very hard to follow somebody else's rules. So if a child is trying to lead the group and trying to tell them, oh, we'll do this and you'll be uh, cops and we'll be robbers, it's very hard for them to uh, flex to that other person's leadership and that other person's idea of what the game should look like. They'll find it very hard to see multiple uses for the same toy, for the same item. So, for example, a hairbrush is just a hairbrush. It's very difficult to see that a hairbrush can be a mic or it can be uh, a gun or it can be a broom. And you can see a lot of need for social relating. So children who are autistic want to relate to other people, but find it very hard. Find it very hard to to say the right thing in situations. It's very hard to say, you know, I'm sorry if they bump into a friend of theirs, or it's very hard to say, okay, let's let's reason. If you want my toy and I want your toy, why don't we swap it? It's very hard to share because they don't understand what the other person's feeling is. We think that empathy develops around the age of three or four. And it's a very common one that children say, well, my child is saying the most awful things to me and cannot see the impact that they have on me. They tell me that they're going to do this to themselves and do this to me and do this thing, this to their sibling. And they cannot see the impact of this on me. 
And I say, well, okay, let's keep an eye on this space because it looks like empathy is taking some time to develop. Children who are autistic tend to struggle with understanding both the other person's emotional experience of a situation and their own. So it's very difficult for children with autism to understand that if unless you're crying and tearing your hair out, you might be sad. They're very if they find it very difficult to understand subtle sadness or subtle disappointment. You have to be absolutely distraught for them to understand that they are, that you're hurt. And even when that happens, because they struggle with nonverbal language, they have no idea what to do, even if they've seen a reference, even if, if you've been appropriate in how you handled their, their upset, they don't know what to do with you at that moment. They don't know that they have to come and pat you on the back or uh, they have to bring you a toy or they won't even look like they're sad. But I'm saying this and you're going to probably be looking at your five-year-old and thinking, oh my goodness, my child is probably autistic. Now, I see a lot of, of, of children in, in my line of work. And sometimes it's very easy. I, I can see, okay, this is autism. I don't even need to do a full assessment, but I'll do one anyway. And sometimes I feel, mm, I'm not sure, actually. Maybe give this child a little bit of time to catch up. And sometimes I say, well, this is definitely environmental. Something else is going on that's affecting this child's development in this area. This is something to do with school, or this is something to do with the environment at home, or this is something to do with uh, trauma, or this is something to do with the ADHD. Sometimes um, the same child with the same problem can mean different things. But when it comes to five-year-old, we really tend to be more permissive in terms of the delay because children tend to catch up a lot of the time. And when you're five or under, making the diagnosis at that age is kind of, kind of predicting the future a little bit, that your child is going to develop in this certain way. And sometimes we fear that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, that you change everything around them and you and you associate and you associate everything that they do with autism and and school associates everything that they do with autism and they build their development around the structure and the child has no room to flourish. They have no room to bloom, if that makes sense, and they have no room to be challenged. So this is why we're very careful about giving a diagnosis of autism in children who are five and under. If it's not clear, if it's not absolutely clear where children are, um, are they're nonverbal, they can't speak well at that age, or they are repetitive in their speech, or they are uh, stuck with certain stock phrases or speaking in a certain mannerism, or they have multiple uh, different movements that they do repeatedly, like hand slapping or uh, certain stimming movements, if they're, if they're completely socially unable and if they are very repetitive in their play like you know putting things in a row continuously unable to engage and play with other people unable to engage and play with grown-ups and absolutely distraught by tantrums repeatedly um, having difficulties in managing their emotions struggling to join school at all at that age then we think about, okay, this is probably autism. Let's get all of the stuff. Let's go. Let's get all of the evidence together to show us that this is not related to the environment. It's not related to other things. 
Because the problem with labeling children at a young age with developmental disorders is, like I said, it might draw a trajectory and it might stop people from challenging the child. The benefit of making a diagnosis at that age when it's very clear is that from a very early age, you're able to put in the help in place to help this child have the best outcome that they can have. So a child who's absolutely clear, developmentally delayed socially at that age, has to, for example, have a special um, school placement or have a specialist plan made for them. If they go into mainstream, they will absolutely struggle. There is no recourse for them where they will have uh, proper input in place to help them develop verbally, to help them develop socially. So, so there are pros and cons to having a diagnosis at a very early age. And absolutely, if the child is, is autistic, I am the first one to advocate, yes, I'm going to give this diagnosis because I want this child to have access to the best things in place for someone who has autism. I won't mess around if I think it's autism. But if there is room for this child to grow and be challenged and there is room for, for other things to be put in place to help them develop and grow kind of out of it, then I absolutely won't advise getting a, um, a diagnosis. I'd advise getting an assessment if you're concerned. But if I'm on the fence with a child who's under five, sometimes I have this conversation with parents and say, well, you know, I don't know. I don't think this is autism. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me today. Remember to check the show notes for helpful resources and support. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe to our channel and get notified about the latest episodes. This is Dr. Tagrid, wishing you well.